Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. Oh, you're helping the blind. No, we're not helping the blind. We're creating a system where blind and visually impaired people can find their own potential and their own value so you, society, can benefit from it. In this week's Dangerous Vision Podcast, Randy talks with Sarah Minkera, founder and CEO of Empowerment Through Integration, a nonprofit committed to developing a more inclusive society. But everyone has challenges in their own life in different ways. I think for me, I've seen, I've been empowered so much by my by parents and by my teachers and my community to a point where I've been able to see the strength behind my blindness. Thank you for joining us, Sarah, and uh, and in particular, thank you so much for actually coming to my office, which uh, means that uh, we get to be together in person, which uh, a massively reduces uh, technological snafus and also is just uh, uh, fun. So uh, thanks for being here. Um, am I, uh, was I correctly informed that you're a Harvard grad? I am. Um, first of all, I'm really happy and honored to be here and to be with you, Randy, and to finally meet you. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure. And, and so uh, so this is a return to Kevin. Now, do you, are you around Boston a lot of the time? Or tell me, I know you're a world traveler, but give me the gist. Yes, yeah, so I graduated from HKS in 2014 um, mm-hmm. and been around Boston since then, actually Cambridge. So I have a nonprofit organization and my office is right across the street from the Kennedy School. So did not move that far. Ah, oh, fantastic, fantastic! I, uh, I, well, I used to walk by it every day on my way to work, um, and then I had my foot run over crossing Fifty Fifth Street in New York and broke my leg, which was it was kind of the dream injury because, like, I had had a couple of close calls. Now, do you see anything? Um, no, I just have light perception. I see. Well, so I, I, uh, you know, I have retinitis pigmentosa, it's degenerative, so it gets worse every year, and, and I, I kind of went through this period where I was having these really uh, bad close calls, but then after each one, I'd be like, oh, that was no big deal. Everything's fine now, you know, I'm alive. And and then, uh, so I wouldn't change my behavior. And so what I needed was for something to happen to me horrible enough to scare me into safer behavior, but not so horrible that I ended up uh, totally destroyed. And so I was in a cast for four weeks and that was like exactly the message I needed. So now I take Uber. I, I, I love it. I like the, I like how you see the silver lining in that situation. Yeah. I really, I think it was truly a life-saving accident because I'd had a, a couple that, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was, it's, it's tough out there. You know, there's a lot of like, uh, very fast moving, you know, one ton objects flying down streets and, and, and so forth. And so, so how do you, you and do you live near your work or what do you do? Um, I'm actually now, I used to live in Cambridge and mm-hmm. then I moved back to Hingham in the South Shore. Oh, so it's a ways. So wait, so I take the, either the disability rights service mm-hmm. or Uber. So, so tell us about, tell me about the disability rights. So, Cause one of the main things I want to accomplish on this podcast, I mean, look, mostly, well, I won't promise mostly. we'll talk about lots of We'll certainly talk about uh, your work, which I'm super excited to hear about. But one of the things I want to accomplish in this podcast is just to share tips and tricks as widely as possible, uh, because I'm constantly astonished at how much I don't know. And uh, almost every time I meet somebody who has a visual impairment, they tell me something that makes my life dramatically better. Yeah, so it's actually, um, I'm guessing statewide specific. Um, Mm -hmm. What it is, it's it's attached to the public transportation of Massachusetts and it's if you have a disability or any other kind of um, need you can get onto this service where um, it 
takes you from point A to point B, mm-hmm. which on a very technical level, that's amazing. And it does allow all my independence to some degree, but the system still has lots of um a lot, lot of things to be fixed and improved on because it could take, for instance, up to three hours to get to a place sometimes oh, wow. because they pick up people on the way and drop off people and mm-hmm. they're just, they're the way they map out the navigation. So now in order for them to really ease the process, they've actually uh, partnered with the Uber and Lyft services mm-hmm. and I get 10 Uber passes a month, um, which allows me to use the Uber pass to get to my destination on a very low, low cost. Um, and, and it kind of allows me to be a little bit more mobile. All right. So tell us, um, yeah, tell us about your your studies and then what they led to you doing now. Just tell us your story. I mean, I'm not a smart enough interviewer to ask you the right question. So you tell <laughs> the, I'm sure you'll tell the story better if I just say tell it. Tell the story. Okay. So um, grew up in math, um, went to Wellesley College for undergrad, studied math and economics. So I'm an introvert at heart. I love math. I love, um, I would rather be doing math problems on the side than anything else. Mm-hmm. I was planning on doing a PhD. Um, and sorry, now I, I got to ask you, could you see anything back then? Um, so good question. So I actually, um, so my blind story is that I have macular degeneration of coronary dystrophy. Mm-hmm. So similar to you, yeah. it's a retinal right problem. And over time, so it kicks in at age seven. Mm-hmm. So at age seven years old, 98% of my vision was gone. So I had 2% usable vision left. Mm-hmm. And since from age seven all the way up to my college years, um, my usable vision was gradually decreasing to a point that it's not, it wasn't able to be, mm-hmm. you know, any usable vision. So, um, so Yes. So when I was young, I can somewhat read large print and that kind of stuff. But that was like, and that that changed. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna constantly interrupt your story. I should I should mention that like I don't really interview people. I just like have a conversation. So I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna do half the talking here. That's just how I am. Okay. So so um. Did you sometimes you hear stories with blindness and even more with deafness, I suppose, where uh, people think the kid's dumb, right? They, they, they don't realize that it's a perception issue and they think that the kid's just like bad at school or something. Did you encounter those? Because, because the other people I've talked to so far didn't lost their, either lost their sight in adulthood or never had it. You're the first person I think I've interviewed who, who um, uh, lost it in childhood. So I'm curious about that experience. So I actually was lucky in the sense that my sister, who was two years older than me, she also experience the same. Oh, so she'd been through it. So, so your parents she were went ready. through it and they were like, so the, some teachers were like, because it kicked in at age seven, right? No yeah. one expecting, no, no one knew yeah. you know, what's going on, why she's not studying, what she's saying, she can't read the board, why mm-hmm. she, you know. So it took, it took them time to understand that she actually has a visual impairment. So then when it happened to me, I age seven, like, oh, okay, she's, um, so she's mm-hmm. on the same path. So to some degree, my sister faced the brunt. Of that. I see. Yeah. I see. The uh, when I, w- I I started to have serious trouble reading in graduate school, and th- I've been incredibly lucky in that I feel feel like I've always kind of my losses have come kind of like six months after they came up with a technology that could help me out. You know, I got, so so it was like by the time I basically got just barely got through my courses in grad school, kind of squinting my way to the black at the blackboard or, or, or reading the books. And then by the time I was working on my dissertation, uh, where you don't have to read as much, um, I, uh, it was good because it was really, really hard to read. And I was mostly only able to read like on screen and stuff like that. 
did they teach you what was Jaws existed? Did they teach you? I didn't. I never. I've never used Jaws. What I use is Kurzweil One Thousand, oh, no. which which yeah. I find super useful. And, and now more and more, I'm doing more with the phone because as as, as, as even Kurzweil is getting a little harder to use. The 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 phone is is a savior, and we can get into that in a little bit. But the the um and so uh you know they the the people at University of Chicago were were very kind in in sort of uh, putting me in really what I needed was like very well lighted rooms for the classrooms and they, they organized some of that stuff and I mean, I wasn't smart enough to ask for like really big, um, uh, you know, uh, adaptive, you know, things and all. But 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 just those little things were just barely enough uh, to get me through. And then plus, uh, but on my research, I was able to co-author with people who are amazing, wonderful people who 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 uh, you know. So sometimes they would do things like the literature review, where you have to go read a hundred papers to make sure what you're trying to do wasn't already done. Uh, you know, they took the brunt of that, and I would work on other other elements of it. I had a bunch of things that are kind of the things that a lot of math people love, like Gödel's theorem and things like that. You know, uh, just you know, sort of fun, fun, cool math stuff. Um, and um, and uh, but of course, I, you know, whatever. I was like, you know, twenty eighth in the circle or whatever. And, and of course, they all got used up by people who were going uh, course, before yeah. me. Uh, uh, and so finally, uh, they got to me. And I had uh, I'm of the generation that got uh, new math, which meant you know they taught us all this like set theory and other kinds of you know like fourth grade, right? They would teach us all these crazy. And um, and uh, and so they and so I said, well, I've always been really partial to uh, the reflexive property of equality a equals a because i just feel like it's it's just so hard to get anything else done if you don't have that and i did get a laugh and that you know got me out of the hole so <laughs> that's how i save myself from not knowing enough math <laughs> i love how when we did the real analysis they were like so prove x plus zero equals x one professor he was like i don't want you in my class you're not going to succeed so um but i had a lot of classmates come up to me they're like sarah we love taking classes with you because those classes are much yeah. more, you know, um, well explained and articulated. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's what it means when something is made accessible um, for, for all the value for all. Mm-hmm. Right. I read on the computer with, let's say, with Kurzweil, and, uh, and and this was especially true. Even now, I can still see it a little, but not that much. But when when I was a, just a few years ago, I could see it some and also read it, and, and I hear it coming into my ears. And I would say to people, everybody should be doing this. You people are crazy. You're going to learn so much faster if you're getting the visual and auditory stimuli at the same time. It's really great. I remember one time I was in this classroom setting and it's a room full of 100 students and each of them had name cards so people could see who's talking, right? And I remember one time saying to the classroom, can you please, when you speak, say your name so I know who's talking because I wanted people Mm -hmm. to better engage um, with the class. And um, and my professor told told me a really important lesson saying that when you ask for your rights, it's not just for your rights, it's not just a value for you, but it's a value for your classroom. Mm-hmm. When the class when your classmates don't are you're not able to fully engage in your classroom, your classmate moves on your value and your potential and your contribution. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a value lesson that when we ask for our rights and when we ask for our accommodations and when we ask to be able to be fully integrated and included, it's not just a value for myself, but it's a value for the space I'm in. And yeah. I think that's what we get to point is that everyone values from our contribution. 
So good. So you finish up uh, math and, and econ, and at this point, what do you? What, what's your life plan? What, what are you thinking? So, about I mean, actually, actually, during college is when my plans changed. So I sophomore year in college, I got a grant from the Clinton Foundation, and it allowed me, um, me and my my friend, my classmate, allowed us to actually. I thought Bill and Hillary just stole all that money. Anyway, <laughs> we, we just stole that. <laughs> so, and it allowed us to um, to run a summer camp, inclusive summer camp in Northern Lebanon. Oh. Um, the story behind it is that my parents are originally from Lebanon, so I'm mm. Lebanese American. I was born and raised here, but my parents are Lebanon, so growing up, we used to always go to Lebanon during the summers. And because of that, I grew up experiencing two worlds, one world where I was very empowered, supported, integrated, and another world where I saw my blindness as something to be ashamed of, and my blindness seen as a charity case, as a burden, something to really hide. And I always thought in the back of my mind, imagine growing up in that narrative my whole life, I wouldn't be sitting in front of you right now. Yeah. And unfortunately, most kids with disabilities across the globe, even parts here in the U.S., are living that narrative. And that's why I always wanted to do something in Northern Lebanon where my parents are originally from. And that's why we did an inclusive summer camp bringing together blind inside of kids, so kids with and without disability. And through recreational and educational activities, and through kids coming and playing together, they learn from each other and they learn the value of inclusion and that they learn the value of belonging. Mm -hmm. And it was so powerful, not just for the kids, but for the families and for the greater community in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. And I remember, you know, I bought went back to college and never thought to do anything with it. Wait, wait, wait. I want to I pause you for one second. Did, did, are you saying you created a camp from nothing or are you saying there was a camp there and you got them to take blind kids? You created a camp from nothing. Okay, so wait, before you get back to going back to college, uh, I'm just trying to make, like, when we say a camp, should we be thinking, like, so when I was a kid, I went to this summer camp in Maine, and basically, we, like, we played sports, we did water skiing, archery, riding, all this great stuff, and, and, and I had a friend, uh, my, my best friend, and he went to camp, too, which was a Boy Scout camp, and he's like, well, we would do 12-mile forced hikes and things like that, and he would, like, make fun of me and my whim camp and so forth. So, what the, so the word camp covers a lot of ground, so give me an idea of what so this camp So, we did was. a wide range of, like, arts and music and dance and um, a, little, a little bit of like science activities and mm -hmm. on the side we also did life skills programs but it was inclusive it was not just for the blind kids it was it's like, well, yeah so what percent half half okay and and and, and so how uh, what how do you improve the online like i imagine if you're a blind kid and society is much more great because they said we've got a kid that's excited to have blind kids here that wouldn't be a hard sell how do you get the other kids excited? Uh -huh. And that was actually uh, a challenge because, yes, actually, we did get people excited. It was not easy. I was actually pretty easy to get them excited, but they got excited for the wrong reasons. I and mean, we made it clear that we, especially parents, of the society, they're not like, no, the parents of the society. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's. No, because parents, oh my God, parents of society kids and parents out there that have kids. Um, Never send your kids to a, a camp because all oh, you want kids to your kids to learn, um, learn um, how to help or learn how to. Um, I mean, it's good to learn how to help. I'm not saying not to help, but like a lot of parents are like, yeah, I want my kids to learn how to help the blind. How, no, we don't want the helping narrative. We want the charity narrative, and we were very clear that their kids are coming to our programs to learn the value of inclusion. Mm -hmm. So it, was, it wasn't it was hard to sell, but it was making sure that kids were not 
parents were not sending their kids for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still some kind of bias um, in coming in, but hopefully, but coming out of it is what where we created the greatest impact. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a constant, constant struggle, constant narrative we, we face, even from donors, even from parents, even from the community members. Oh, you're helping the blankets. No, we're not helping the blankets. <laughs> we're creating a system where blind and visually impaired people can find their own potential and their own value. So you, society, can value from it, um, benefit mm-hmm. from it. So it's really moving from a charity-based perspective to a value base, not just human rights, but value base. So, yeah. I see. Okay. So then you came back to college. So, so now did that camp just keep running in your absence or did you go back oh, every no, no, summer? No, no, no. Or so it was just like, literally, I thought it was just going to be one time thing. Uh-huh. Went back um, to college, was going to go back to my normal life. And then my thesis advisor um, was like, Sarah, why are you applying to these PhD programs? Why? He's like, your eyes sparkle when you talk about that summer camp that you Go pursue that. So, okay. So, all right. So, so good. So you figured out that you wanted to do this and then, and so then did you leap into it out of college or even during college? So I actually, yeah, I registered it when I was in college. Mm-hmm. I brought together a group of friends um, who are my amazing support who helped me launch it. And then I took a year gap between undergrad and grad school to kind of really focus on building that out. And then I went to the Kennedy School specifically to learn about how can I grow this nonprofit and create programs that really create systemic impact and systemic change and not just create programs for the sake of programs. Mm-hmm. And those two years at the Kennedy School really helped me think through um, our organization, our approach, our strategy, our vision, our programs. And um, and then coming out of the Kennedy School, our programs really grew significantly. So right now, right now in Lebanon, we have a cycle of seven programs that we run. And then internationally, we have um, these inclusion workshops that we do for corporations and other entities. So it's, it's yeah, it's grown significantly since. So, 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 so tell me about the stuff you do for corporations. So, okay. Um, here's what it is. And, just as I know, it's not simulation of blindness. We're against simulation of blindness, so mm-hmm. we'll just make sure that's clear because you okay. can't get it in the beginning. Okay. Um, so the concept. It's not dining. No. Well, yeah, it's, not, it's not dining in the dark, but I mean that's why we're going to change the name. Anyways, okay. um, the concept, but it does use similar kind of techniques. But I'll okay. tell you what it is. The concept is, you know, I, I humans. Um, when they meet people for the first time, sighted humans, what do they do? Size people up and there's yep. seconds that label them and to those labels, they attach yep. assumptions, right? And that's where all these isms come from, whether it's ableism, racism, ageism. But if you're meeting a person for the first time without seeing them, what happens? 85% of those labels cannot be created, mm-hmm. which means 85% of these assumptions cannot be formed, which means you're really forced to get to know that person for who they are. Mm-hmm. So we've done that concept of the power of blindness, right, mm-hmm. uh, we would say. And we've created these workshops for many different spaces, whether it's corporations, nonprofit, and academic institutions. Side note, we're actually doing one at HBS next week. Mm-hmm. And where people all are blindfolded before they enter the room, they're also told they cannot say their name, where they're from, what work they do, and their educational background. Okay. So those four things, they cannot talk about them at all. They enter, they're seated in groups, they don't know who they're sitting next to. They don't know anything. And then for a two-hour long facilitated session, 
we push them and we encourage them to really start understanding and reflecting what are the isms they interact with on a day-to-day basis, preventing them on one hand to tap into their full authentic self. Because ultimately, when we know people are seeing us and judging us, what do we do? We tell our behaviors. Mm. On the other hand, they also learn about what are the isms they use, preventing uh, preventing them from seeing others' true value and potential. Mm-hmm. So those through those two hour-long sessions, versus we first have them say, introduce yourself. And they look around and they're like, well, we can't talk about our name and our yeah. work and whatever. There's more to us than that. So these automatically start digging deep. And then we take them through this journey of different questions and this journey of reflection, understanding. By the end of those two hours, the bond and the connection and the authenticity, mm-hmm. it's so beautiful. And we say that our goal is not for people to be blind, yeah. and we don't want them to be blind. We actually think diversity and labels are beautiful. Mm-hmm. But the good question is, how can we create a space where we delay our assumptions and we don't allow assumptions to impact us? How can we create a space where people can move forward and bring their true authentic self um, fully? And how can we create a space where we, we tap and support each other to tap into our full potential? So it's more of a... Uh, coming out of it thinking about how can we create policies and practices to really create the same experience but without using the blindfold. You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. Okay, I I just want to tell Sarah's mom and dad if you're listening, I'm going to get her to get a PhD. I don't think we need more help. I think we just need different types of accommodation, but everyone has challenges in their own life in different ways. I think for me, I've seen, I've been empowered so much by my my parents and my, my teachers and my community to a point where I've been able to see the strength behind my blindness. Okay, I, I just want to tell Sarah's mom and dad, if you're listening, I'm going to get her to get a PhD. There are so many great studies that are going to come out of this. Look, well, all you have to do is get a bunch of people and record their conversations and then get a bunch of people and blindfold them and record their conversations and then study the differences in those conversations. That's a fantastic dissertation right there. You can write that in six months. Like there's so many interesting things you can do with the work you're doing. I'm telling you, just just do what you're doing and take a lot of notes and then you'll find that you can like get a PhD in, in 18 months. It's going to be awesome. Okay. You want from six to 18 months. Six to dissertation. You still have to do it. Hey, you still have to pass the classes. They don't let you out of the classes. Six months for the dissertation. All right. They, uh, that is so, so interesting just to think about the way that, that people's uh, behavior and conversation and everything would be different and if they can't see each other. And you think that it would, we've done it probably so many times and over thousands of people across the world in different spaces, different organizations, different cultures, whatever. And we think, okay, it's not going to work in this kind of, it, same outcome in every single setting. And it's so beautiful. And everyone comes out of it like, wow. I've known my colleagues for 10 years and I did not know these things. I mean, I've never connected with them on this level. So it's a very beautiful. I I had an amazing experience once. I was on the train from Philadelphia up to Boston. I wasn't that blind yet, but uh, it was night and it was dark. And I was seated next to a guy and we started a conversation and he uh, started asking me about myself. And uh, if people do that, I'll end up talking about myself a lot. Like, like, uh, refuse to do so. And so we talked about me, you know, I mean, about stuff generally, but me focused for probably 90 minutes on the train. And then finally, I like, you know, thought, where are your manners, Randy? You know, and, and I said, oh, so, you know, tell me what, what about you? What do you do? You know, because I fell into the trap of just asking the what do you do question. And he said, uh, well, you know, as you can see, I'm a man of the cloth. I'm like, actually, I can't see. I'm, I'm you know, I have a, a vision impairment and it's pretty dark in here. I can't see. Anyway, it turned out that he was the archbishop 
of the Anglican Church for the Eastern United States. And he was an African-American guy, who, and he told me that he uh, was sort of expected at that time, this is quite a while ago, uh, uh, Bishop uh, Tutu was still alive, and he was expected to take on uh, Tutu's job when he passed away. I don't actually know if that happened. So and, cool. and and so, you know, because he was African-American, uh, he was, you know, and so that was a natural fit. For South Africa, he was like, I really like living in Philadelphia. I'm not particularly eager to move to South Africa, uh, you know, from that point of view. But of course, from the point of view of the mission, uh, I'm eager to do whatever the church needs from me and so forth. And we had this thing. But so the point is, I got to talk to this guy for an hour and a half, who every single person who ever talks to him treats him in the way you treat this famous religious figure. And I just treated him like some dude I was getting drunk with on the train. And that was kind of cool. I didn't even know know he was African-American, to tell you the truth. and, and, um, And I actually... I have this funny experience. I'm a big sports fan. And, you know, there's all these issues around race and sports and so forth. And what's funny is all these players that I will find out are a different race than I thought, like 10 years after everybody else was aware. And and it'll be really interesting that I'll realize, oh, I had all these conversations. Oh, that's why people keep talking about this guy being gritty. It's because he's a white guy, you know. It's it's really, really funny, you know. And you're just like, I don't know. I think there's power behind one. I think that's, I mean, that's the whole point. And I think there's, there's, it's just seeing that beauty. Anyways, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because people always talk about diversity and let's face it, much of the time it's just a euphemism. But I think in terms of the point that you're, that you've raised here, it's not, it's like, Obviously, if we could cure everybody's eyesight, you know, um, um, count me in. You know, I mean, not not just for me, but for the world. Let's do it, okay? And I'm eager to do that, and I, I try to uh, do some things that help out with research and other things. But um, but that said, do I think you know, given that uh, some people have to suffer not being able to see, do I think that there's benefit to the world from having these people who get this very different uh, perspective, to use a visual metaphor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and and we should take advantage as, as you're. Right. And I, th- I think actually, like you said, your point. There's a purpose behind each of the pe- people's diversity. There's a purpose behind it. And there's there's me- beauty and meaning and power behind it. And I think the society needs to see that and not to see the this in our disability, but see the, the beauty and the power behind it. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's unfortunately what we always focus on the this aspect. But yeah, exactly. Let me hit you up on on, on um, uh, technology or tips or anything. Are there any tools, whether it be uh, a uh, phone app, a, a uh, you know, anything um, that, that you want to recommend to people because I think this is literally one of the easiest ways that we can do good through this podcast is if you've got any tips yes, to share. Yes, let's see. Um, well, of course, for all you out there who are visually impaired and blind and have iPhones, you probably already use VoiceOver. Yeah, it's so great. Um, it's amazing. I actually just started. I, I've been using mostly Speak Screen, which is a tool that does you know some of the same things, but requires a little bit of eyesight. Mm-hmm. And now, and and as my eyesight's gotten worse, I'm like, I'm gonna be you know, if you can't see it all, you really need to use VoiceOver, which uh, you know is 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 a little more. You have to learn some new gestures, and I didn't want to do it. But I thought, you know, I'm not gonna be the idiot who waits till he's totally blind yeah. to learn this. It's gonna be so much easier to learn it now. And now I mix the two together, and it's incredible. So if you're uh, if you're like ninety percent blind, like me out there, definitely try try both of these things in concert because sometimes one of them is better and sometimes uh, the other. So you want to say a few words about what VoiceOver does, just in case yeah. some people don't know. So VoiceOver, it's um, a screen reader software. So whatever your finger touches on the screen of your phone, it reads it. And in order to select it, you double click it. Now I have it on the high speed 
which is amazing because yeah. and if you're able to whoever is using it, you're able to kind of practice to use it on high speed. Um, you're able to really get through your emails and work really quickly, yeah. and it's really efficient. So. I have I have students here who have no visual impairment and who are using uh, like uh, Voice Dream Reader, which uh, which uh, Sassy from the Association for the Blind recommended to me. Oh my God, it's such an incredible uh, app. It's $10 and they'll reach you. And, and what's funny is the student kind of, not not wittingly, he's the nicest guy around, but he, but he, uh, he challenged me because I, I made a comment about how, oh yeah, you know, I breathed you know, 350 words a minute. And, and he's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm up to 450. And I was like, what? This kid's beating me. <laughs> and so now I'm up to like 430. He's probably at 490, but the point is, uh, but it, it's, it's, you know, there's all this evidence for this that, that like, like, you know, you just have to be shown that something's possible and then and you discover so so uh, if you're using screen readers my advice to you is tomorrow like move it up 10 words per minute and see how it goes and then if it goes okay wait a few days and then tr- and then move it up another 10 because you just you're just it's like lengthening your life right it's like adding five years to your life if you can read everything 40 percent faster exactly exactly <laughs> oh my god so good but you get so much work done but also i mean there's this um victor frankel says in one of his book that the human body, its capacity is much greater than we ever think it is. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't, we don't really use a really huge percentage of our capacity as humans. And I think that one example of showing that we can actually be able to um, uh, listen faster and we can actually yeah. be able to digest things faster and that kind yeah. of stuff. So I think that's something for us to always explore. How can we always improve and tap into more of our potential capacity? But I use, I love WhatsApp. Uh-huh. Um, WhatsApp has been my lifesaver and it's been a tool that I use with my team and it's because the voice messaging is so easy. Um, I love oh, I see. So instead of typing out the message, you just send a voice message. Yeah. Through it's through so through I would be walking and I can use this in the recording. And that won't work on normal iMessage. I've never done it. With it does, but it's much, it's much actually easier um, is that right? oh, to WhatsApp? do it on WhatsApp. WhatsApp is, I love it. Um, yeah. And uh, what else? there's something I haven't used it yet. My sister uses it called Be My Eye. Yes, I haven't tried that either. No. Okay, so your sister's recommending my eyes. It's good because if you're at a place that you really need someone to help you yes. see something, you can just. I really them. should get it, and and yeah. it's just like. Maybe once a week there's something where like, exactly. mm, I can't tell which like prescription bottle this exactly. is or something like that. And it could really save me or like finding the bathroom, you know? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I think, I think being my eye is a tool um, that is pretty helpful at times. And um, yeah, I mean, for computers, of course, JAWS. Mm-hmm. JAWS is a big thing um, that most of us use. And it's a, it's a pretty, pretty awesome tool. Um, yeah. So the, um, oh, so I wanted to ask you about the international work. And what I was curious about is, look, I think it's a given that, um, not for any specific country, but that on average, uh, if a country is poorer, uh, it's going to be harder for them to do the same kinds of things, uh, for the disabled that wealthier countries can do. And so it's going to be that much harder in those places. But do you notice uh, other big differences between countries or cultures in terms of that there are some places maybe that despite not having the resources that you might expect actually do an amazing job for the blind or for the disabled generally or on the flip side if there are countries where you're like this is such a wealthy country and yet what they do is very disappointing I don't know I'm sort of intrigued by what you learned in, in traveling around the world and, and thinking about these issues I think one common theme and pattern whether it is a developed country or underdeveloped country I think the difference I think one common problem across the world is still that um, most countries, when it comes 
to addressing disability inclusion, it never comes from a point of value. Um, it comes at best from a point of human rights. And when it's coming from a point of human rights, then people are not going to think of disability um, from the get-go when they're creating the system, whether it's the policies or the practices or the programs or the products, right? It's always seen as, um, now let me think about how, how to make it accessible for the disabled, or now let me think about... But when you, when you have cultures and societies thinking and, and seeing that people disabilities are part of the original system, and automatically they're building infrastructures or programs or products that include disability, it is much cheaper. It's proven to be much cheaper. And it is becomes, it's a mindset change. And I think even in lots of countries in Europe, it's still a struggle. Even here in the U.S., it's still a struggle. Mm-hmm. Because you have companies, when you tell a company, you have to have a quota of how many people with disabilities you need to hire. Mm-hmm. What, is that, what, what is that telling the company? Mm-hmm. That you have to, this is a, like almost like, yeah. it's not saying, that means like when people within that company don't see, oh my God, I want to, I see the value. It's like, oh my goodness, I guess I have to. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so saying, even when they're making an effort to do what they think is really good for the disabled, it isn't always. No, no because it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's literally perpetuating the narrative in, the, in a different way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why I feel like there's still so much work to get done where employers see the value employing people with disabilities, and not just in certain positions. Like, they really, we push people in certain positions, right? People in certain positions. I remember, like, I was in Thailand, for instance, and they were, like, so excited. Like, yeah, people with disabilities are, are blind people are um, hired easily. I, I don't know if it's Thailand or not, but anyways, mm-hmm. uh, because they're always, they, they, they become masseuse, and they're financially independent, and that's mm-hmm. amazing. Yes, being financially independent is amazing, but do we actually encourage and get people to decide what the path is mm-hmm. and what their potential is, or are they pushing, being pushed down a certain path? It's so interesting you mentioned that because I, I was uh, I was reading the book uh, Shogun. Did you ever read this book? No. Well, when I so basically when I was a kid in the seventies, uh, every every parent at my swim club was reading this book, Shogun by James Clavell, and uh, and then and I didn't read it because I was like, ah, that's some grown up book. But then at some point I became a grown up, and I'm like, hey, you know, all those people were reading that book by choice. No teacher forced them. Maybe I should check it out. Plus it. Has this awesome cover with a picture of a samurai sword on it that's like really badass. And so I'm like, okay, I, I should check this book out, even though it is cube shaped. I mean, it is, I think it's like 1800 pages long. It's an enormous, enormous book. Um, and uh, anyway, so I read it. It's superb. It's just a fantastically entertaining book. And it's uh, it's a fictionalized version of the first Englishman ever to uh, go to Japan back in the 1600s. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that uh, is, is mentioned in the book, and you know, it was a minor plot point, is that they basically um, reserve the job of uh, massage, you know, masseur or masseur for blind people in Japan all the way back, you know, the 1600s and who knows how much earlier. Um, and I remember thinking, uh, you know, this is kind of a clever way for a society where there's not a lot of resources they can't afford to just, you know, have, have you know, train blind people for things that normally blind people wouldn't be able to do it, you know, so, but they're trying to find a way to give them a break, you know, and, uh, and so that's so fascinating that it sounds like in the far east, that's still that tradition. Well, that tradition continues in all across the world in different ways, exactly. And here's what I see, like, there's so many famous people out there, to give you an example, Thomas Edison, he had, he was hard of hearing, mm-hmm. and he had other disabilities, and if he was kicked out of school when he was young, because his teachers thought he had no potential mm-hmm. and um which his mom like 
didn't she took him out of school whatever and she pushed him to keep his education and she used to take him to the library and books and whatever and he was she supported him and empowered him to pursue his own path and became this amazing guy and um again if he was pushed down a certain path of what society expects from him we wouldn't have someone like Thomas Edison mm-hmm. or, or you know there's so many people with disabilities out there that when they're when people are empowered and supported and allowed to do what they want to do, so much value comes out of that, and that's why it gets frustrating to me so much when society presents its own expectation of what this person can or cannot do. You know, yeah, my, my, the writer who's influenced me the most, probably of anyone, is a is a, a is a baseball writer named Bill James, and he's sort of famous for introducing uh, serious statistical analysis into baseball and so forth. And he wrote this essay years ago about, uh, and he was talking about how there there are a number of uh, famous baseball players from the distant past uh, with names like Dummy Hoy, right? And the reason Dummy Hoy was called Dummy was that he was deaf and deaf and dumb, and so they called him Dummy. And he said, you know, we don't call deaf people Dummy anymore, and obviously that's a good thing, you know, that we don't have. Have this kind of behavior. He said, but you know what else? There aren't any deaf guys in baseball anymore either. And, you know, he's not obviously claiming that there's a correlation between this uh, insulting uh, treatment, obviously, um, but just, you know, he sort of is asking the question of like, uh, you know, it, it is, it's interesting when you observe uh, all the um, greater effort that we make to do right by disabled people, then nevertheless, in certain things, you're seeing less, not more. And is that you know, is that just a fluke? Does it have to do with, uh, you know, the way the game has changed or other things? There could be a million reasons, uh, but, you know, raising the question. So many, I mean, it's so interesting because also, like, I'm a big advocate. A lot of people are trying to find different names for disability, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a big advocate saying, I am a person with a disability. Why do you want me to hide or erase that identity of mine? It is mm-hmm. part of who I am. Because when we erase that, what happens? Then we erase we're hiding the, the population and we're trying to avoid the elephant in the room. We're trying to become too, you know, and we're, we're, we're perpetuating this narrative that there's something negative attached to this. And I think that's, that's a really common thing that's happening in, in, across our society. Yeah. Like for instance, in UAE, now they're calling people with disabilities, people with determination. Mm-hmm. And I think that with all due respect, that I think that's, that's not right because, uh-huh. You need to really accept, I am someone who cannot see. I am blind. Why do we want to avoid that? And because I'm blind, I do need certain accommodations and support. But it doesn't mean I cannot do things in life. And I think that's what the society needs to move forward is saying that it's part of who we are and part of our identity. And and we need to accept it and see the strength behind it. And I agree with you. And I think that goes back to our previous point, right? When you make something simple and accessible for all, I mean, accessible and it's accessible for all, so it is, everyone is able to really access it and value it. I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's very beautiful. I think people just need to have that mindset from the get-go. Let me make this as simple and accessible for everyone. It's just, but it doesn't, you know. It's I not think, a common mindset. I think that's right. All right. So let me, uh, we should, one question I like to ask is um, if you have a book recommendation, by the way, in no way, shape, or form does this have to be blind specific. In fact, I'm going to tell you specifically what I want, which is I am looking for books that are massively entertaining. So I'm looking for recommendations. So you got anything good for me? Okay. So I have a few. Yeah, one great. is, um, I'll, I'll give you from deep to entertaining. So yeah. one is Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. I love mm-hmm. that book. And I think it has so much thing. It gave me so much things to reflect on as a person. Um, and a second is uh, this one that was surprised a few years ago called All the Light We Cannot See. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. There's two main characters. One is a, blind, a visual impaired kid 
uh, French girl, and she loses her vision when she was seven, and it's like it's gradual decrease, and it's really beautiful how it just describes her experience. I just love it. Woman um, who lost her vision at seven enjoys book about woman who lost her vision at seven. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's not the main purpose of the book. It's a journal okay. or two. And all right, all right. Um, third is. Well, um, do you know if the author is black? Just because I'm looking. No, but well, either way, I might want to interview the author, right? Because that that's that was an idea I had. I'm like, I, really I, you know, point. just like interview people who've written about the blind, whether they're blind or not. It's a really good question because the way she she or he, I forgot the author, um, describes describes that girl's experience is so so surreal, so true. Yeah. Um, third is um, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Um, such a funny autobiography. It's narrated by him. So funny. Yes. So I've funny. heard incredible things about that book, yes. and, and I, I've got to I've got to download that it's book. So funny. And then fourth, it's more general. I love a lot of mystery novels, like um, so. I, I do a lot of Jane Patterson and Elizabeth uh-huh. Peters and that kind of stuff. Oh, okay, good. I, I um, yeah, I, I'm always happy for a recommendation where if you like it, there's 20 more. You know, because that's just like I, I mean, I understand there's people who want like innovation and everything, but but uh, and I'm not saying I mind uh, a, a little variety, but at the same time, like if there's an author who writes uh, you know great mysteries and I can read a couple dozen of them, I'm I'm all for that. Right now, I'm reading um, well, I'm reading uh. uh Tune in, which is a uh, a history of the early days of the Beatles. It actually starts from their childhood and then goes to. I believe it's the first in, in either existing or intended. I'm not sure if he's written the other two yet. Uh, like three volume series about the Beatles and um, and especially now that I've got oh I, I can't say her name or she'll she'll respond to me. But uh, the the woman who lives inside the Echo, whose name can't be said. Um, but uh, uh, but but so what's great is you know I can be reading this book and then it can talk about uh, a song, let's say that inspired. Uh, the Beatles, and um, and then I can just you know ask you know so I was talking about you know the, the uh, early skiffle song Rock Island Line, and then I'm like Alexa play Rock Island, and and uh, and so uh, so it's really enjoyable to be able to you know hear the music at the same time, and and uh, so that's uh, so that'll be my uh, my recommendation for this week, and. Um, um, okay, so then I like to ask people, uh, and and you can feel free to pass on this one. Not everybody uh, has a good answer to this, but I like to ask people if they if there's something you believe um, that not many people you know agree with you on. Like I just like to hear you know unusual views that people hold, you know, because uh, I don't know. I think it makes life more interesting to hear uh, 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 stuff like that. So any anything you 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 believe in, you're like, yeah, most of my friends think I'm crazy, but I really think this. Um. Me- maybe on this topic or point, I don't seek to have my sight back, I think, um, hmm. which a lot of yeah, that is people find it weird. Um, and maybe because it's, it's given me purpose in life mm-hmm. and it's, I, I, yes, there's a lot of technical challenges and obstacles in my life, which is, can be very frustrating on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone has challenges in their own life in different ways. I think for me, I've seen, I've been empowered so much by my, my parents and my my teachers and my community to a point where I've been able to see the strength behind my blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, I enter a room when I'm able to really get to know that person before I actually make any assumptions. Or I'm able to really, because I depend on people when I travel on my own, I connect with strangers and make so much beautiful friendship mm-hmm. because I'm always facing with, I always face technical obstacles in my life I'm forced to be more creative and innovative with my approach and resilient. And I think all of those are are strength. And I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I think it's just given me so much purpose. Um, so that's something that I even 
many people think I'm crazy to do. That's awesome. All right. So future guests, take note. That is an awesome answer to that question. All right. That's that's the kind of cool thing, you know, uh, out of the box thinking that we're looking for. Um, so great. So my last question is, you know, I always feel that, look, I, I just started doing this recently. I'm not any kind of professional interviewer. And so what I always feel like is people have incredible stories that um, I'm not smart enough to elicit or, or skilled enough as an interview to elicit. So if you've got a story that's your funny story, your best story, your most, you know, uh, heartfelt story, anything you want to share with us that I wasn't uh, clever enough to get out of you yet, we'd love to hear Wow, I think wow. Um, I think we covered a lot, but mm-hmm. I think one thing. I mean, it's not even a story, but I think one thing is that it's so important for this world to really realize that um, the perceptions of others are always not the full story. For instance, we don't think blind people can do a lot of things, and I think for me, like I've been, it comes from privilege. I've been privileged enough to be able to hike and fly down a volcano in Nicaragua, for instance, mm-hmm. or um, or bike through the jungles of Indonesia, you know. So, like, I think it's, um, I, I think there's so many um, crazy and amazing things that um, people with disabilities do. And instead of us seeing it as an inspiration, as we call it in the silly world, we don't like inspiration porn. We don't want people to feel find us inspiring just because we exist and we breathe. Um, because... <laughs> This should be expected. We should see people with disabilities, our parents and teachers and employers and, and uh, activists and rock climbers and whatever, and that should be what's expected. And I think that's, you know, that's something that we need to move society to move towards instead of saying, oh, my God, you're a mother and you're blind. Or, oh, my God, you're, you know. And I think for me, because I founded an Armando nonprofit organization, people just fix it on the fact that I'm blind and I have a nonprofit organization. No, it shouldn't be because I'm blind. That's what they're fixating on because I ran a third organization and I think that's a huge point in, a, in the disability world. Don't ha- don't follow the inspiration form path. The, uh, all right, let me give you one last uh, opportunity, which is if people are excited about the mission of what you're working on, uh, A, if they're excited from a, I don't know if you're taking contributions and things like that, tell them what to do. And okay, if no, they, yes. and, and at the same time, if there are people that they would like to sort of get involved, they just want to give you a chance to give whatever information people need, whether it's websites or other things, cool. uh, to, uh, to be involved. So, first, my name is Sarah Minkara, and our, the organization is called Empowerment Through Integration. Empowerment through integration, also known as ETI. Um, if you're interested in checking out our, checking out our website, it's www.etivision like you know, vision, vision mm-hmm. um, etivision.org. And if you wanted to be, just add to donate. And then if you're interested in getting in touch with me, it's S M I N K A R A S M I N K A R A at etivision.org. Um, yeah, looking forward to getting in touch. Fantastic, Sarah. Thank you so, so much for being on the Dangerous Vision podcast today. Of course. Thank you, Wendy. It was really great. You're listening to the Dangerous Vision podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown. 